Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a cyber talent strategy for all of government. And the government's contracting dollars aren't going where you think they're going. It's Monday, September 12th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Interior Department has a new chief information officer. Darren Ash takes over the CIO job at Interior today. He joins from the Farm Service Agency at Agriculture. He's been CIO at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, too. September 23rd is the new deadline for two pools of the Polaris contract from the General Services Administration. Small business and women-owned small business are the two pools that get the extension. It's the fifth extension of the Polaris contract. You can read more about these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's coming this Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and sign up through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Office of the National Cyber Director is developing a talent strategy for the whole federal government and the whole cyber industry. The National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, says his office is looking to hire a workforce specialist, too. Margie Graves is senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government, chair of the Industry Advisory Council. She's former deputy chief information officer of the United States. Margie, welcome. It's good to see you again. This is seems to be kind of the next iteration, the, the next step in figuring out what we need talent-wise not just all across the government, but all across the country, and especially in the industry that serves the federal government. What do you expect to see in this workforce strategy? What would make sense to you for what the government can do to help build this cyber depth that we need all across the the landscape, Margie? Welcome. Thank you, Francis. And this topic, of course, is top of mind for most people who work in the cybersecurity industry because finding that talent is the challenge that we all share. Um, One of the things that I noticed in reading through all of the um, media on this particular issue is that they're trying to uh, hit several points. One of them is increasing the pipeline itself, then removing barriers to entry for people to actually come into service, uh, achieving equity and pay so that uh, there is a baseline and there isn't uh, cannibalization, I guess, especially within the federal government of, of people just moving from agency to agency uh, because there is not uh, equity and standardization across uh, the entirety of the federal government and also equity with private sector. Though DHS, of course, has had a program in place that has tried to hit that mark, um, it has not uh, been promulgated across the agencies as a whole. And therefore, uh, it's still, I would assume, in um, proof point mode. <laughs> We're trying to, to prove the concept. But meanwhile, I think we need to accelerate that and actually get that uh, promulgated. I think Angie Bailey did a fantastic job when she was at DHS of understanding the ramifications of how to develop this workforce stream and to uh move us along in a fashion that would uh, sustain us over time also. Um, The unified message that needs to go out from the government as well as uh, uh, have the industry participants uh, 
provide their input along the way, uh, is that we are willing to look at what I would call skills proofing. And this is something that we actually started when I was at OMB. Uh, we looked at the cybersecurity workforce um, opportunities and, and tried to do some reskilling initiatives. But what we found uh, when we went back into the end of the cycle and tried to hire those people into existing jobs within the federal government for people who had actually been through the reskilling program, that there were still barriers in the HR system that uh, prevented them from easily uh, walking into those jobs because there were so-called um, experience requirements that they couldn't have possibly obtained unless they had already been in the field. And the whole point was to get more people into the field as novices. So we need to close that loop most definitely. I do think that reskilling programs are a good part of the equation uh, because I do believe that there are adjacent skill sets within the federal government population where people do want to move into cybersecurity as a new discipline. So uh, more emphasis on that would be appreciated. In terms of increasing the pipeline, we talked about that, um, that messaging campaign. There are a number of communities that I've visited in uh, the various states over the years, um, particularly in Colorado and Texas and Michigan and others, where there has been an effective collaboration between the state legislature, the funding, the uh, educational institutions, not only at the uh, four-year college level, but also at the technical college level, and also in the high schools. And when that pipeline gets developed from the very beginning in high school, all the way through those various um, aspects of education, then you have what I would consider to be a, a good working mechanism to actually generate uh, the future leaders in cybersecurity. You talked about one of the biggest problems, at least as far as people are telling me in government right now, and it's not just about cyber talent, it's about talent in general, and that is what Kieran Ahuja, the OPM director, calls agency hopping. People are shopping, maybe not moving more than ever, but they're shopping more than ever based on what work flexibilities are available, the working conditions that are available, and so on, more than we've ever seen. And Andre Mendez, the CIO at Commerce, talked about it at Fed Talks a couple of weeks ago, where mm -hmm. um, he, he doesn't want to be seen as a poacher, but that's the best place to get talent, as you just described it. What, other than sheer volume, than, than raw numbers of people, is there a way around that, do you think, Margie? Or is that just kind of the nature of things, given where we are in 2022 with all of the factors that we've talked about in this conversation so far and that, that other practitioners have outlined? I think there's an opportunity for OPM as the lead in uh, human resources for the federal government to put into place some standards that would... Uh, I guess I'd call it the expression, all boats rise with the tide. Yes. Um, to uniformly raise the bar for both uh, pay and for uh, flexibilities and uh, ability to enter certain fields with uh, 
credentials that are upskilled rather than uh, obtained through education. And um, I believe that the more that we set those standards and raise those bars uniformly across the federal government, you would see that die down a little bit. Um, my expectation is that once you remove the incentive to move for either a pay, a raise, or a, um, a promotion, uh, it also depends on, on what promotions and, and capabilities are, are available within an agency. So I don't think you're ever going to uh, get rid of that aspect of it. But um, if you remove the other two, then what you've got is I either want to move because I want to see a different mission space, which is totally legitimate. A lot of people want to do that over time. They want to see a different landscape and they want to learn about a different mission. But if you if you encourage equity across those other elements, then you start to remove the incentives for people to, to jump. But uh, the promotional aspects are always a driver too. And if you are in a smaller agency, it's tougher to have that headroom uh, for people to move up. So you've got to be able to do all of that. The whole cyber challenge is troubling to people, I think, because of the potential for a huge shock to the system. And we've seen a couple of them over time in the federal government, the cyber breach at OPM, and, and there are various incidents that we've, we all have seen and heard of over time. You and your colleagues at the IBM Center are looking at this idea of future shocks. And it strikes me that maybe one of the biggest challenges is, I guess it's the black swan event, that we... We think there might be some cyber incident at some point in the future. We're learn we've learned about uh, the potential for a, a health problem through the pandemic over the last couple of years. The challenge is we don't necessarily know when we're trying to plan for a future shock what that future shock might be. Right? It, it are, and I wonder what the principles of resilience are that you and your colleagues are finding that might apply to any kind, whether it's a cyber incident or some other kind of incident. Well, I think the talent is is definitely part of that equation. The human resources part of the equation is always key. I also think that um, some of the initiatives that are under the president's management agenda, the ability, uh, the two things that we saw uh, when we went through COVID in the last couple of years, uh, one is uh, being able to work remotely uh, for this for the workforce in its entirety, and to be able to have continuity of government. The other is our interaction with our citizens and having that automated in such a fashion that we could also execute all of the mission spaces in the federal government remotely and on, you know, on um, uh, an electronic fashion, which also increased the uh, need for understanding of what that means from a privacy standpoint and what that means from a cybersecurity standpoint. So all of those things are intertwined. Uh, the COVID pandemic actually emphasized the areas where we have gaps and pretty much shone a light on where we need to improve. Uh, our challenge is to understand exactly within those areas that we need to improve, where, where's the baseline? The baseline needs to be set so that we don't um, ignore lessons learned and drop below a certain level of preparedness uh, simply because nothing's happening right now. 
So in terms of preparing for another pandemic, uh, we have a certain baseline that we keep within the Department of Homeland Security uh, and FEMA within uh, the health and human services areas, within the um, food, water, shelter areas, uh, like um, supporting that arena, that we make sure that we have a, a baseline level of preparedness. And unfortunately that has to be funded so that we're not do, doing a cold start when things like this happen. At the same time, we can't be oversubscribed. Uh, we don't have the resources to be oversubscribed in those areas. So finding that sweet spot is going to be a challenge. So defining that resiliency point at which we think we are uh, well positioned to be able to operate in a crisis mode without having to gin things up from scratch, as we saw in, in multiple areas during the pandemic. Margie Graves, great conversation as always. Thanks for coming back on the program. Thank you, Francis. Always a pleasure. You can read more about the cyber workforce in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the Fed Scoop 50. You can vote for your choices till September 30th. We'll announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The federal government's overall contract spending is down, according to new numbers from the Government Accountability Office. COVID had a huge impact on where the money went and how. Tim DiNapoli's Managing Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisition Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Tim, welcome back. It's good to see you. Before we do this detail, step back and tell me what this snapshot encompasses in government-wide contracting for fiscal 2021. Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis, for having me on your show once again. Well, the the blog site provides a, a snapshot of contracting information, things that we think the public should be aware of. How much should we spend on federal contracts in fiscal year 21? Who got the awards? Uh, where they competed? And those types of things. So it provides kind of a one-stop shop for commonly asked questions and for things that we think the public should be interested in. All right, there are just not a ton of surprises as far as who's which agencies are responsible for the most contract dollars. Big numbers in the Defense Department, big numbers on the civilian side at Energy, VA, HHS, and so on. Here's the first thing that jumped out at me in this snapshot. Total civilian agency spend, $191 billion in services, $51 billion in products. I knew that the disparity had been growing for years towards services away from products, but I didn't know it went that big that fast, Tim. It is one of those shocking things that when you start looking at the data that you find things like that, which then begs questions, well, what kind of services are we buying, right? And you can see from the, from the snapshot, they provide a lot of IT-related services, a lot of professional support services. So those are types of things that civilian agencies are buying, and they are buying much more of those services than products, which you would think most agencies would buy, you know, office supplies and computers and whatnot. And that's not true in the civilian agencies at all. The first thing that I saw on the, on the underlying list of what the services were that agencies were buying, professional support other. Like what's, what's other? 
Well, you know, that's one of the artifacts of the of the source data, which comes from the Federal Procurement Data System, um, which is the official government website for for uh, contracting information. And that's how they categorize it. And we have a pretty good idea of what that is based on our other work. But to be faithful to the data, we're using the terminology of the source data. But those are the types of things where you go to different types of professional services. And so it could, it will vary depending upon the agency, but it could be from anything from consulting services to uh, elevator maintenance or a whole variety of different things. It's kind of a catch-all phrase. You know what that uh, is based on your other work. I see what you did there, Tim. That's very clever. Um, second on that list of services, operation of miscellaneous buildings, operation of certain R&D facilities. So this is the services where, where I expected to see tons of like IT consulting and those kinds of things as services. A lot of this is the day-to-day nuts and bolts operation of just kind of keeping the doors open and the lights on, it looks like. Yeah. You know, it takes a lot of back office support to keep the federal government running. You know, when you think of 24 major agencies spread out throughout the country, there are just a lot of office space that we own and operate and have to maintain. So there is just nuts and bolts. It's just like taking care of your house, just ramping it up a million times. I'm not surprised that the list of products between the defense services and products list and the civilian services products list is dramatically different. Obviously, You know, there's probably not a a lot of call in the civilian services for the number two item on the defense products list, which is fixed wing aircraft. I get that. (laughs) But the services list is also dramatically different. So top five in the civilian services, number five, IT and telecom, number four, professional engineering and technical support, number three, operation of R&D facilities, operation of miscellaneous buildings is two, and professional support other is number one. There's stuff on the top five defense services list that isn't even on the uh, mm-hmm. civilian services, like medical and general health care. That's such a much larger expense in the defense department or in the defense sector than it is in the civilian sector. Well, I think that's a combination of things. When you think about the number of men and women who serve in the armed forces, right, and keeping them healthy providing them uh, medical services through TRICARE and other programs. Those are the expenses that come through um, in that category. It also includes um, those expenses that we to support our pandemic relief, right? less this year than it was at the height of the pandemic. But DOD plays a major role in providing some of those support uh, systems for our friends at Health and Human Services. So there's a combination of things. And DOD, this is one of those unknown things, spends quite a bit of money on health-related R&D and health-related services, right? Much of the uh, Defense Department is trying to keep our men and women healthy, not only in peacetime, but in wartime, so that when they have some traumatic experience on the battlefield, how do we get them safely back uh, home to their loved ones, and there's a lot that goes into that. The number one product category for both defense and civilian was drugs and biologicals, um, and, and it wasn't close. What the what kind of trend does that uh, indicate, though, as a result of COVID, if we go back to the 2018, 19 numbers, 2020, I guess, fiscal 2020 is where it starts to get a little distorted because of the pandemic response. 
Sure. Well, it did get distorted, right? Because DOD was buying a lot of of the vaccines and supporting vaccine development. Um, Much of that came from other transactions, which is a slightly different category than your standard run-of-the-mill contracts. But DOD did uh, buy the bulk of vaccines on behalf of the U.S. government. Um, Since that point in time, DOD still spends a lot of money on medical supplies. Uh, it's again going back to two million men and women in the um, in the armed forces. It takes a lot to keep folks healthy. All right. Um, another part of the snapshot that I went right to was as far as who gets the contracts, and the administration has made a really, really concerted effort to make sure that small business gets a lot more of the money than it has in the past. Uh, it appears that that is working to some degree because it looks like uh, civilian, uh, other than small business, I guess mediums and larges, got $184.1 billion, small business $66.1 billion. The calculator in my brain isn't working too fast, but that looks like that's bigger than the percentages that the federal government's been giving in the civilian sector for a long time. Well, small businesses are so important right, to the U.S. economy in terms of driving innovation, uh, uh, providing uh, employment. The numbers in some ways do look very good, right? We have continued to meet our small business goals, which are measured uh, in general as a percentage of prime contract awards. And we tend, you know, I think the goal is to award 24, 25%, a quarter of the government's uh, total contract obligations to small businesses. And we're hitting that. But that doesn't tell all the story, right? And we have reports out on the street that show that the number of small businesses participating in federal contracting has declined significantly in the past dozen years. And that's a concern to many on the hills, a concern to many in the private sector, and is something that we're paying close attention to. You know, one of the uh, tenants that each administration has looked at regarding small businesses is not just where the contract dollars are going, but how broad the base is and, and mm-hmm. how to replace the companies that, I mean, because ideally the companies will succeed and they'll right. graduate from being small businesses in many cases to becoming other than small businesses and uh, replacing them in the base somehow and continuing to perpetuate those numbers is of interest to just about every administration that I've ever covered. Um, another number here that I think is is noteworthy is where the uh, money is going regarding other transaction authorities. OTAs have been a really hot way of doing business, especially for the Defense Department, but other agencies are starting to use them too. It doesn't look like anybody's using them as much as quite as much as they used to, though, Tim. There has been a, a slight downturn in the past year, and almost all of them has to deal with COVID. Um, we bought, as I said before, DOD spent a lot of money uh, using other transactions to buy vaccines. We're just not doing that as much this year, uh, which I guess is a good thing, right? It's nice to know that we, we may not uh, need the amount of money uh, that we needed uh, in 2020 and 21 to make sure that folks got their vaccines. And we may have moved to more fixed price type contracts for some of the COVID vaccines. So that's part of the story. But I do think, you know, uh, other transactions are 
have increased. You know, they're not the predominant contract type. Even they're very hot, as you say, and everybody wants to talk about them. But they still represent a relatively small portion of federal contract spending in general. Um, DOD does spend um, or does use other transactions more than everybody else. Uh, we're seeing them increasing their use for things like prototypes, uh, for weapons systems, and we expect to see a continued uptick in other transactions in the coming years. As I'm looking at this, I'm making a mental note that I want to talk about the interactivity of this snapshot later because I'm, I'm moving my cursor over the various data uh, point locations on the graph about OTA. And I think it's fascinating the way that you and your colleagues have done this. But to the to the direct point about OTAs, $2.5 billion in 2017, 4.5 in 2018, 8.1 billion in 2019. If we skip 2020 and think, okay, it's kind of an anomaly because of COVID, and we go to 14.9 billion, still, if we take out that one number in 2020, which was 17 billion, that's that's really an incredible growth trajectory for the concept of OTAs. At what pace is it reasonable to continue that to expect that to continue, Tim? Or is there no way to really project it? Is you know, Francis, it's going to be hard to tell because, in part, the law, especially for for agencies like DOD, is fairly broad. So you can use it for a number of different things. So there's part of a cultural change at DOD getting the the contracting officers and and their leadership to support the use of it where appropriate. There are some concerns that, you know, you have to be, you have to be a smart business person to make good use of it, right? Because you are stripping away some of the rules and regulations that govern federal contracting. And, you know, there are reasons for those rules. Now, some of them may be excessive. We can, we can talk about, do they need to be streamlined? But there usually is a reason for them. So now you have to not rely on you know, the federal acquisition regulations to govern your, your, the deal. You have to use your good business sense to make the right deal for the government. So you have to have individuals who are, who are properly trained, people who know how to think, uh, do some critical analysis. You have to have the legal support to make sure that you're negotiating the type of deal that's in the best interest of the government while still meeting the needs of, of your private sector partner who wants to come work for the government. So this is really important in R&D and science and technology efforts. All right. I mentioned the interactivity of this snapshot, Tim, and it strikes me, I don't recall seeing information from you guys, and you know I'm a huge fan of GAO's work. I'm biased about the work that you all do. But I don't recall seeing information presented like this in such an interactive way. Is this part of a new effort that your agency's undertaking in the way that you show people what you have? It is. You know, it's uh, I grew up in the agency where we had, you know, our beloved blue books, right? <laughs> Things that were in hard copy and oh, chairman yes. would roll them up and bang them on the table at hearings which uh, I do miss, you, know, you probably don't want the chairman to bang his smartphone no. uh, on, the, uh, on the table. That would be bad. But, you know, most people get their information from cell phones, right, from their smartphones. And as we think about that first thing that I said is important for, you know, for the, for the American public to know where their money is being spent as part of our mission. And so we're trying to you know, move slowly into uh, going from you know, hard copy to PDF versions to this type of interactive graphic, which I 
considered to be a, a 1.0 beta version to something that's going to be fully interactive and, and truly uh, HTML uh, compatible. And so GAO does have a, a fairly robust digital content strategy in which we're going to move you know, the agency into an era in which the American public can capture um, much of what GAO does digitally on their cell phones and have it easy to read, which is, I think, the key is, you know, you can always download an old GAO report in PDF version, but you can't, it, it's not very usable, right? It's not easy to see on your cell phone. We're going to get to the point where folks can use their cell phone, get access to information they need to answer their questions about how the government is spending their money and what kind of oversight is being done to make sure that money is being spent wisely. It's a great next step to it. I appreciate you coming on to talk about it, Tim. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Francis. You can find a link to the GAO's contracting snapshot in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. If you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.